Welcome to Achieve Wealth through value-add real estate investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Hi, this is James Kandasamy. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate you. I know I provide a lot of value through this podcast and I want you to share it with your friends, with your families and anybody else that you know that kind of benefit from listening to this kind of content. Go share it through Facebook, in through LinkedIn, through Twitter, through Instagram or any other channels that you want to share it because sharing is caring. Thank you. Let's go on with the show. All right, let's talk about bank failures. Uh, so they're back. We had four of them last year. So go to the FDIC site every Friday at about five o'clock and see if they took over anybody. And if you want to know who they're going to take over next, here's a good way to do it. It's the Texas ratio. So the Texas ratio was developed at RBC Capital Markets. It's maintained by deposit accounts at the link there at the bottom. They do this for every bank in the country and every credit union. And what the ratio represents is the percentage of a bank's capital that is restricted by bad loans. So it needs to be a pretty low number, 5% or less is considered healthy. When you get to 10, 15 or 20%, you need to be raising capital. When you get above 20%, you're probably start worrying about a visit from the FDIC on a Friday afternoon to take you over. So what I wanted to show you here, I took Texas and I took the riskiest banks and Dallas is a healthy economy. Look at the number of banks in the Dallas region that are above 5%, above 10%, above 15%. Um, this is not what you'd expect. So why is it that maybe some of these banks in Dallas and Texas, and if you look at Louisiana, similar situation, why do they have such higher Texas ratios? It's not just due to COVID. It's due to energy. Look what we've been through with energy in COVID in the past year, and what we're going to be going through uh, going forward here with everybody give up uh, carbon and electricity. You guys had a taste for what it's like to not have electricity. Um, we don't have enough windmills or solar panels to make everything work. Um, the other is the Gulf region and the 30 storms. So a combination of hurricanes, energy, and COVID has hit Gulf states banking harder than other regions of the country. So there's kind of a reason for it, but I would check in on this if you've got a, a client or a property with a certain loan or you're doing a renovation and you're worried or a loan coming due and you wanna see if the bank's gonna be able to process it. I keep an eye on how healthy your bank is. You wanna see and be doing business with banks and credit unions that have a healthy Texas ratio and those that don't, you might wanna hedge your bet by having a little more diversity in your banking relationship. So this is my early warning indicator like TSA passenger count or Becker vaccinations. The other so, one- So what happens if a bank fail? So it's pretty seamless. The FDIC has this down pat. They already have suitors lined up. I was at the Fed. We we identify potential suitors to take over the assets and the loans, honestly, one to two weeks in advance. Uh, it moves very quickly. Um, the, the depository accounts are insured up to a certain amount. Be careful if you're a business because all of those uh, we learned during the Great Recession was businesses that accumulated their payroll 
in an FDIC assured account that was only insured up to 250,000, but they had a million or $2 million in payroll. They only were insured for 250,000. So there was some intervention that was done to kind of help mitigate that. Those all went away. So if you're a business and you're accumulating your payroll, uh, especially on a Friday or at the end of the month, I'd be, um, I'd, I'd be careful. But it's a pretty seamless process. The FDIC has a down path. They have another entity that takes over. Um, your loan is still serviced. You still have to make your payments. There's no holiday on loan payments. And you can see the branch actually opens up immediately the next day. The ATM is all recoded. So your card still works. And uh, it's it's a pretty seamless process, unlike uh, the 1920s or 30s. <laughs> well, unless uh, you have more than $250,000 in savings in that particular bank, I guess. That's a big yeah. problem. So I'd, be, I'd, I'd refresh yourself and all those rules and particularly if you're a small business or a brokerage or a property manager and you're accumulating rent collections or uh, payroll and that gets above those insured amounts it's it's all at risk so um, you that's why you might want to deal with a larger bank or a different structure where they can provide a facility that, that protects those um, those deposits above the FDIC limit so the other one here is on banks and their earnings. So as we knew, last year, the regulators made the banks quit paying dividends and quit buying their stock back and reserve more capital for the flood of bad loans that were coming. They did stress tests at the end of the year. They saw no bad loans. So what did they tell the banks to do? Go start releasing your loan loss reserves. That was a pretty dumb move because we haven't even seen the wave of those loans come yet because of all the intervention. And I worry that the banks right now, their stock price is up because the earnings that they're getting and beating is largely due to them releasing loan loss reserves. And I think they're going to need some of those for CNI loans, small business loans, closed restaurants that they discover later in the year, hotel loans. I think all that's ahead of us at the end of this year and that the banks may have released too much of those earnings. Uh, those reserves for earnings, and they're going to have to go back into build up the reserve mode again later in the year. So um, be careful. Uh, I put on the right, this is a kind of a schedule. You can go to Business Insider at the beginning of each quarter's earnings season, and they'll stratify by industry and sector uh, who has the big flow of earnings releases. The banks always go first uh, about three to four weeks into the new quarter and retails usually at the end. So the darker green is the, the higher percentage in that sector that come due. I'd have this on your radar for a couple of reasons. Look at the companies, the public companies that influence your local economy. Look at the public companies that occupy your real estate, whether it's a downtown office building or whether it's um, a manufacturing facility and, um, and, and look at where that workforce is. So a big public company that has a lot of workforce in your market, you might want to pay attention to their earnings because that could foretell, you know, good news and bad news. Um, Home Depot just announced they're going to add 3,000 more jobs to the Atlanta market. That came out in their earnings report. That was really good news and very bullish for uh, both the single-family, multifamily market in Atlanta. But it could go the other way with what's happening with some retailers and uh, and other companies. So pay attention to the earnings, understand what's going on. It has a huge impact of what's going on in commercial real estate. And here's the here's the good news. If you want a crystal ball on how commercial real estate is going to do six months out, pay attention to the earnings of public companies. They tell you everything that's going to happen six months down the road. They're already doing it by their behavior, whether they give you forward guidance or not. All right. I want to digress for a minute on valuations because we sometimes just look at market conditions. 
in occupancy rates and rents and cap rates. And we forget how those influence valuations and what the real estate's worth and how we get capital for it. So I brief the bank regulators every quarter. I've been doing it for 13 years. I'm the only MAI that they have do it in the whole regulatory system and from the industry. And it's because I tell them the truth and I go off script and I tell really good jokes. And and I always, James, wear my really fashionable red shoes. So this is what really does it. <laughs> so this is a graphic I put together years ago when I was at the Fed, 2005 to 10, that wanted to remind the regulators and the Fed presidents and even Bernanke how these problems happen. And these cycles work the same way. We start with easy money, like subprime mortgages last time around. What's the easy money today? The Fed. It's free, no interest rates, two and a half percent mortgages. Then we get a misreading of demand drivers. What are what are public builders doing right now? They are loading up on land again. And that land isn't gonna have houses on them probably for two years. And what do you think the environment's gonna look like two years from now? You think we'll still have 16% a year home price appreciation? Uh, you think that we might risk for a normal recession after all of the boom after COVID? I think that we're gonna repeat just like what we did in the housing crisis where all the public builders got stuck with a lot of excess land. So we misread demand drivers. We think we need lots of land and lots. Then we erode underwriting. We think it's worth everything. We think we're gonna sell 50 homes a month. Then the market changes and we have loan losses and it all starts over again. And these cycles happen. Um, we go through them in a real bad way every 10 years and they rotate between residential and commercial. Last time it was residential, I think this next one is gonna be very severe on the commercial side and maybe not as much on the residential depending on how we undo the forbearance things. So I wrote a piece mid last year on valuing commercial real estate during a period of material change. So material change is a technical term in the bank regulatory world. It's kind of your expiration date on the mill carton. It tells you when you have to get a new appraisal, when you have to refresh the value. In something like COVID, is a material change. And technically the bank should be reappraising every asset, but they're not. So why aren't they doing it? One, we have intervention um, that, that's kind of skewing it up and the regulators are telling the banks, don't worry about it, we want everything liquid. And the second thing is, where are the comps? So you look at office buildings, you look at hotels, there's not a lot of sales. So getting a new appraisal without sales isn't very meaningful. Um, so I want you to be aware of that. It's a very important technical term. And the regulators, they, if they don't take their meds, they might wake up one morning and say, Barney Five, material change, you're under arrest, go reappraise everything. And you could have borrowers and everybody that are really jammed up. So what, what drives and guides all this is something called the Interagency Appraisal Guidelines. The last time it was updated was when I was at the Fed, it was one of the co-authors, and it was right before I left in 2010. And it's the rules of the road and it's rooted in FIREA. It embraces USPAP. And so it's very important, but it's very out of date. Doesn't address even Dodd-Frank. It, Dodd-Frank uh, hadn't even been implemented when this was last passed. So what the regulators are trying to do is they're trying to supplement it right now with what they call fill letters, financial institution letters. So why don't the regulators want to update any guidelines or guidance or rules or regulations? because the public comment period and the politics in this country is ridiculous. You probably take five years to get it through public comment. So these fill letters are meant to be a band-aid and they're horrible. They tell you nothing, but you better be aware of what they're commenting on because at least the comment, if they're talking about a comment on LIBOR transition or um, you know something like that or material change, 
it's on their radar screen. You better start understanding what that term is, but they're not telling the banks much about what to do. So I'll tell you who is that's really on top of it. And this even surprised me because we don't tend to think of the credit unions as being the leading entity on regulation and good supervisory policy, but the NCUA has come out with new 2021 supervisory guidance that is spot on. I tip my hat to it. They're addressing LIBOR transition. They're addressing your loan loss reserves, what we call AFLL, the allowance for lease and loan losses. Um, they're dealing with hemp. Uh, how do you how do you classify a loan or, or regulate a loan in Florida that has a hemp business in the real estate? It's now legal. You, you can't criticize it. So um, really tip my hat, the NCUA. So this is one that I pay attention. They've got a lot of good guidance that the FDIC and the Fed should be um, helping their banks out with. So the reason I set that up is I'm doing now on a quarterly basis. I brief the regulators. I share with them what concerns me, what I'm seeing and what they should be thinking about. And I take a lot of questions from them. They're letting me now on a quarterly basis share some of that that's not confidential or supervisory um, in, you know, in process or super handshake related for FOMC meetings and share that with you. No one's ever done this before. I'm the only person that does this in the country. So we've developed a webinar series that we're going to launch. The first one is on March 23rd. I've already done my first quarter briefing to the bank regulators. And here's some of the stuff that we're going to share with you. I'm going to do this uh, again in June, um, the third or fourth Tuesday in June and the third or fourth one in September. And I'll share again what's evolving with the regulators and what they're telling you about construction loans and commercial real estate loans and appraisals and all that kind of stuff. And so here's the link if you're interested. I tried to make it a real deal. It's $1,500 for all three sessions for as many people in your organization as you have. So it's a deal. Um, no one else has done this, has never been out there. So if you're interested, if you've got a lot of debt, if you've got maturing loans, if you're a banker, um, I really encourage you. I think this will be worth your while. And if you don't like it, let me know. Um, I'll, I'll rebate you or we won't make you pay until after the first one of March 23rd. So I just want to share that with you to help you. Yeah. Um, I want to put a plug in. I know you're more residential, housing, multifamily concentric. I want to put a plug in for CCM Institute. Logistics is huge. And so we just developed the first ever industry course on last mile logistics. What is it? How, is it? how does it work? How do you find one? How do you make money at it? Um, so it was free to all CCIMs that renewed their 2021 dues. Um, I've developed it um, with the Institute. Uh, so be able to be proud of the Institute. Here's an area that they're, that they're leading in and tip our hats to CCIM. And along that lines, I wanna call your attention to something that released last week. And I recorded a podcast with CCM Communications team, I think last Friday, that will release maybe this week or next week on the American Society of Civil Engineers every four-year report card on our infrastructure. And they rate 17 categories, everything from aviation to wastewater. And every four years, they give it a grade. It's a phenomenal report. It's 172 pages. So if you're having trouble staying awake and need, a, need something to read that'll put you to sleep, um, this will do it, but except for me as an economist, it keeps me up all night. So here's the good news. For the first time in 20 years, our grade went up and came out of a D. It was a C minus, but it was only that because of two categories, ports and rail. They were the only two to get a B grade. Everything else was a D with a couple of C exceptions. Um, we really aren't making a lot of progress on infrastructure. 
Um, but it's important to understand this and why you asked a question, James, earlier. Why Texas? Why are you doing so well? Remember, I mentioned it's the whole complete package of infrastructure, whether it's electricity or ports or rail, or schools, bridges, your airports. You have the full complete package. And companies don't want to build or put new capital assets to work or develop them in places with bad infrastructure because they can't work. And so that's part of the answer. This is very good and accretive for, for Texas and many parts of the country, the Southeast, Florida, Mid-Atlantic, the Carolinas, Tennessee, uh, the Intermountain region, Utah, Denver, um, except unless you're going over the ski industry, the highways are terrible on I-70, just go to Utah and you can be up at the ski slopes in 20 minutes from, <laughs> from downtown Salt Lake. So this is a very important item I'd encourage you to look at. Um, and you can look for this podcast. I give you all the cliff notes. And with that, I'm done. We can take some questions. Here's a little more about my team. There's three of us. We're a majority uh, women-owned business. So I try to walk the walk with ESG, environmental social governance. Um, I'm the only aging white male in my whole company. <laughs> so we're trying to exterminate me and make me extinct. Um, we have all female minority interns and uh, students and assistants that are helping us. But we do a lot in economics and forecasting and consulting and expert witness testimony, helping people with appraisals, appraisal reviews, helping banks, the whole basket. I have no handcuffs on me that I can do and say anything I want. It's my own company. Uh, I have great partners, Beverly Keith in North Carolina is a CCIM, past president of the um, North Carolina chapter. So I really have a good team. I'm really excited at 58, being an entrepreneur in the middle of a pandemic, it's working out. There's where you can find us, there's our menu. And with that, I'm done and I can stop sharing and we can see if you want to share. Casey, can we go to the few slides which shows the cycle of uh, you know the loan and how the liquidity changes? Uh, can we share yeah. that? I have a few questions on that. Um, and are you saying uh, rent forbearance in multifamily is not considered delinquent based on the tracking by trap? Yeah, they can't. Um, the agreements are such that if you're in a forbearance outside of the normal loan agreement or the parties. Um, so it's mandated by FHFA or the GSEs who hold the loan, Freddie or Fannie. It can't be classified as delinquent or forced transfer to the special service. So okay. those numbers are really skewed down right now. Okay, so 3% may not be 3%, could be much higher. Nope, I think it's more like five right now than going okay. higher if we really counted it. Okay, um, well, so so what happens with all the money pumping that's by being done by the Fed? How would that impact inflation and how would that impact uh, the potential rent in you know multifamily great question so i took my fed slide out because it's so depressing <laughs> so here's the first thing so the fed has ballooned its balance sheet by almost four trillion dollars last year from 3.2 to 7.5 that's the largest it's ever been it got up into the four trillion range with the great recession um, and the biggest increase in that was mortgage-backed securities they bought over two trillion dollars in the last half of last year so the fed is supporting housing that's why we haven't had a housing crisis if you're in mortgage delinquency or you're a mortgage forbearance and fha wants to sell that mortgage the fed will buy it it can get liquefied so the gscs can keep going so they're booing the housing market because they know with a pandemic if you have people become more homeless and you have the a foreclosure and eviction process like we had after 2009 um, probably we would implode 
from a pandemic standpoint. So does the Fed back off on that or does the Fed continue it? And here's the test. So we've seen the 10-year Treasury rise to 1.6. I think it was in the 1.5 range today. Um, in On November 10th, it was 71 basis points. And on November 11th, it went to almost 1%. That's an incredible jump in one day. So what happened? On November 10th, the Treasury took the largest auction of 10-year Treasury bonds to the market, and the rest of the world said, no, thank you. So there were not enough counter bids. The Fed had to intervene. The price had to rise to try to bring people in to buy. And what the rest of the world is discovering is the Fed, in concert with Treasury, is devaluing the dollar. We're devaluing our currency. And Congress is exacerbating it with these stimulus programs. The $1.9 trillion that we just passed, and the checks will start going out this weekend, um, we still have a trillion dollars we never put into the system that's already been approved. And if you see the economy recovering, um, we're putting way too much in the system, in my opinion, and we're setting ourselves up for even more inflation. And the other thing that I, I worry about in this, in this whole process of the stimulus is a lot of it isn't targeted. There's a lot of waste. I'll give you a couple examples. There's $300 million in this bill to study COVID in animals. We don't think animals transmitted. I think there's been uh, one example on um, uh, lynx or, um, gosh, fox furs or um, I forget what they are out of out of like Switzerland or Norwegian. Um, they found some there and they, the mink, all the mink animals. But we're not seeing it in cattle and chickens and our pets. Um, 300 million. Nancy Pelosi has a multi-billion dollar program that's going to build a special uh, light rail train in Silicon Valley. I think the Silicon Valley folks can pay their own freight train. <laughs> I mean, there's just a lot of waste in this. And less than 10% is really going directly to state and local government. Less than 10% is going directly to schools to help them get opened. And so they, there's a lot of talk about we need 1.9 trillion and probably anywhere between 30 and 50% of that is pork and waste. Um, and we can't afford it. Our kids are going to have to pay this off. And as the rest of the world says, you don't have the growth, you don't have the fiscal discipline, and you're printing money, and you're a fiat currency, which means there's nothing backing it. So what has to happen? Interest rates rise, your currency devalues. And so what's the hedge in that? It's commercial real estate. But the cost of debt, right now we have a very favorable spread between debt and cap rates. And so if you can borrow it two and a half to three percent and you can get a six cap rate, that's a pretty sweet deal. Um, and so that equation is going to narrow. And I think as interest rates rise, and I think the Fed is going to have a real problem on its hand by the second half of this year. If we truly see six or eight percent GDP and this economy really open up late summer and early fall, uh, the Fed's got a real problem. It's either going to have to step in, buy more treasuries, buy more mortgage-backed securities to keep the interest rates down, or they're going to have to let it go. And we're going to see a 10-year treasury at 3% or higher. My forecast the first week of January was that we would see a 2% 10-year treasury by the fall. We're almost there, um, uh, the way we're going. And it wouldn't surprise me to see us hit 25 to 3% by early next year. So as you're doing your debt financing, think about two things. The cost of that debt capital is going to be going up, I think, in the latter half of the year and next year. And what's the other thing that's going up? 
construction and material costs, lots of inflation. So if you have inflation, uh, I'm doing a home renovation right now. Stuff that we used to be able to get in one to three weeks is now three months. The costs are up 20 to 25% from when we bid the job just in December. So not even three months. Um, so a lot of these things are going to get out of balance. And I think what it means is existing commercial real estate, existing apartments, existing value add in the suburbs are going to go up in value because the replacement cost is much higher. So commercial real estate is that perfect hedge against inflation. We already have inflation. I think it's at the 4 to 5% range. Look at lumber. Look at steel. Look at copper. Um, look at everything that you consume in your daily life. Look at meat at the grocery store. Look at fruit and vegetables. Uh, except for clothing, I don't know anything that isn't up 5, 10, 15%. So uh, remember the Fed and the CPI and all this stuff, it's a cooked algorithm and they change the weighting. So one example is housing. And in the CPI index, if housing costs are, following, are falling, they increase the percentage that housing represents in the CPI. If housing prices are going up and rents are going up, they decrease it. So they, they mass the thing. My favorite exercise I did at the Fed was um, the Fed economists were telling me in 2009, 10, 11, 12, that there was no inflation, particularly in food. And I said, really, how do you justify that? So they went and they bought a basket of goods at the grocery store and they said, okay, this is the basket of goods that we bought. We buy the same basket every month. Here's the box of cereal. Here's all these different packaged uh, food goods. And they said, see, the price is about the same, $1.99 a box, $3 a box. And I said, that's interesting. How many ounces are in that box? The number of ounces, the box was the same size, the price was the same, but there was 25% less ounces. So my response to him was for that box of cereal, as long as you're comfortable with your kid only being able to eat until Thursday breakfast cereal because there's not enough there for Friday, then you're right. There's no food inflation. That's the kind of academic stuff that goes on in the Fed and these um, institutional academic economists that don't understand what we're dealing with in the real world. So I think inflation's already here. Debt costs are going up. Um, commercial real estate's a beneficiary and a perfect hedge. Uh, do what you can right now with the rates the way they are right now. I'd be leveraging up like I can. I don't know if we'll ever see rates like this this low again. At least not while I'm still alive. I'm 58. So I think I'm out of here before they go down again. Yeah. And what about the potential uh, minimum wage increase to $10 or $15? How would that impact the rents on uh, you know uh, multifamily? So it tends to help it because that demographic tends to be more dependent on that type of wage structure. Um, so it helps them. It means they could absorb rent increases. Uh, means maybe they could move up into a better apartment unit. So it tends to help multifamily more than single family. It's not going to happen. The complexities of implementing it, what is $15 in New York versus $15 in Macon, Georgia? Uh, two totally different numbers. How do you enforce it? Uh, how, how do you, you know, how do you implement all of that? It's just not, it's not going to happen. There'll be more pressure through tax policy and other incentives put on companies uh, to basically increase their wage rate. And we've already seen that. Walmart's already done it. Other retailers um, have done it. Grocers have done it. They're making such great margins with e-commerce and um, being able to do things more efficiently through e-commerce that they can actually afford to pay more workforce and they actually can eliminate more. So the ones that really get hurt, hurt are restaurants um, and the leisure and travel industry. So um, I don't think it implements at all. There's just, it's too complicated. Um, 
there'll be we'll have our own version of Brexit. I told you, I think last year it would be called yeah. uh, uh, Florida and Texas just exit. Yes, yes. Uh, so, um, was there any part in the history that we have come to this kind of uh, inflationary, potential inflationary period, and what happened during that time? So, you're going to hate my answer. So, I actually feel that what we're going through is very reminiscent of Jimmy of the Jimmy Carter presidency. So, let's go back to the 1970s. We had Nixon. Nixon had inflation. How did he try to fight it? He put price controls in effect. That didn't work. He lifted them. We had a big political event called Watergate. Gerald Ford came in as president. You know, he did the right thing, I think, for the country, which is pardon Nixon, get him out of there, try to get us to move forward. And so uh, the country can't forgive that. So he gets booted and we bring Jimmy Carter in. Jimmy Carter, great guy, great international person, great military marine, uh, nuclear submarine commander maybe not his strongest subject was economics and what happened all hell broke loose we had the you know inflation he didn't know how to deal with it um we he had a fed chair paul volcker that said let's just shut the economy down let's go to 21 prime we had the misery index we had an energy debacle hmm, that kind of sound familiar we're saying let's not be energy independent let's look what's happening to gasoline prices look what's happening in wyoming and the in the in the fracking regions um so i think what this is very reminiscent to that time we didn't understand what we had or what was working from a policy standpoint. Forget Trump is a nice person and congenial guy that played well in the sandbox. But on policies, I happen to believe many of his policies were spot on. You got to control your borders. That's a lesson from Brexit in Europe. You've got to, um, I believe in deregulation. The biggest thing he did to boom the economy wasn't his tax act. It was deregulation. Let businesses work, create more capital, create more churn in the economy. I believe in a lot of his policies. Um, um, I wouldn't want my daughters bringing a Trump person home <laughs> as their uh, fiance. Um, but from a policy standpoint, I believe a lot of it worked. I believe we didn't appreciate it. We couldn't separate the personality from the policy. We've done a complete 180. And um, I think it's just like what we went through in the 70s, going from Nixon and Ford to Jimmy Carter, not understanding what was working in the background and all hell breaking loose. And now think about Treasury and the Fed. You have a former Fed chair, Janet Yellen, running Treasury with one of her best buddies, Jay Powell, running the Fed. So whatever they want to do in terms of calling up and say print more money and do whatever, there's no checks and balances on the Fed. And it scares the bejesus out of me. And the last time we had a major fiat currency implode in the world was Germany after World War I. In 1990, the trade of the German mark to the dollar was 12 to one. Three years later, it was something like two trillion to one and the economy collapsed. And Germany was doing a lot what we're doing today. So we better pay attention to what's going on in monetary policy, our Fed, the checks and balances. We don't have any checks and balances in our government today. And so it's, it's, it scares me, it concerns me. We, we aren't students of history. We don't teach it anymore. I wasn't a fan of history when I was a kid, but I've learned to appreciate it a lot more. And so I think I hearken back to really that 1976 to 81 period of time. And I, I hope we don't go through it again. My dad was a ski resort developer in Colorado. We went from living in a wonderful home in the Denver Country Club and having living help and a wonderful life. And, you know, two years later, I'm sharing a bedroom with one of my siblings and wondering what the hell happened to life. <laughs> and uh, every construction loan got called due. And uh, it was a horrible next 10 years. And uh, sometimes we just, 
we don't pay attention to what's coming at us. And I don't think we're paying attention to what's coming at us right now. Scotty, I think that someone has said there's something somewhere in the slide which says Bitcoin is more than $50. Can you explain? It's uh, 56000 a day, an all-time new record. So, And that's oh. another proxy for what's going on. The Really, the rise in Bitcoin is a vote against the dollar. So think about Bitcoin. We're not making more Bitcoin. They're not increasing its supply. So you've got lots of demand. People want to hedge. They want to use it for different things. And one of the reasons companies like Tesla want to use it, I wrote a paper on this years ago when I bought my Toyota from Toyota. I was working with the Toyota procurement executive, and he was explaining to me how they were then using Bitcoin to acquire the components and commodities that they needed to build cars to hedge against the volatility in currency prices and the, and the currency volatility. And so they would buy Bitcoin. It's an algorithm that mutes out what's going in monetary policy. So if you think the Fed's going to print more money and devalue the dollar, the algorithm says you should buy goats in the Swiss Alps. And they'll go up in value by the amount that the dollar goes down, whatever the algorithm is being absurd there. But that's what it basically is. And it enables companies to still have trade at the same pricing without currency volatility. That's why corporate entities are moving into Bitcoin. It's a stabilizing of prices as we do global import-export trade. And so it's no longer how it came about, which is trying to launder the proceeds from illegal activity, whether it was drugs or not. It, that is so far removed. But we're not increasing the supply of Bitcoin. We sure as heck are increasing the supply of the dollar. 20% increase in money supply last year. So uh, it's a proxy on what's happening to the dollar and what you can expect. Also, you know what's your other equivalent to a proxy on Bitcoin? Cap rates for commercial real estate. In industrial, the public REIT that I that I serve as director on, we've seen cap rates go from the mid mid to high sixes into the four percent range for the same asset. You're seeing it in multifamily. Look at the competition. Look at the decline in cap rates. Cap rates are a, a mirror of risk, and people look at real estate, commercial real estate as a hedge on risk, that it's more safe, that the replacement cost is gonna be more than the current asset. And it provides a nice coupon. And remember what most retirees, baby boomers, and pension funds are looking for today. They're looking for yield. They can wait and be patient for price appreciation in the stock or the asset, but they're looking for yield. And commercial real estate provides what Bitcoin can't. It provides a yield. And so the the, our industry and our layperson hedge or alternative to Bitcoin is commercial real estate, whether it's a duplex, quadruplex, apartment, couple of single family homes for rent. Um, and that's why I think we're going to see a very strong commercial real estate market. And if you go back to the 70s and look at the time frame of owning commercial real estate from the early to mid 70s into the early to mid 80s, if you entered the 70s, owning commercial real estate and you had staying power, you put the debt in place, you balanced everything, uh, you knew what you were doing and you could make it through five to seven years, guess what? You about tripled or quadrupled what your net worth was. And I think that same thing's gonna play out here for commercial real estate. Whatever we're about to go through, I think commercial real estate is gonna be a really nice hedge and wealth preservation tool. And that's an important message to have with your clients, your investors, and especially right now where you can still borrow really, really cheap and have that nice margin spread between the cost of debt 
and the cash on cash yield, it's something that we rarely see. This is this has only happened maybe two or three other times in the last 75 years. So they're saying they invest as much as possible into commercial real estate, right? A bit with the rates being so low right now. Borrow like hell at two and a half percent. We just did a bunch of refinancing. I couldn't believe it on our industrial assets. Everything was rolling over. And we're getting rates at like two, three to two, five percent. And we're buying assets at, you know, high five to low six cap rates. That's a beautiful spread. Things really work well. Um, they won't work so well a year from now when that when that number compresses. Yeah. Other questions. Uh, Texas cities has been aggressive about property taxes. How does uh, taxes rank with others on this and how will it affect business migration to Texas? So we're all going to pay taxes. Um, so in Texas and Florida and Tennessee, you don't have as much in income taxes, but you make up for it in things like um, property taxes or other um, user taxes. Um, I think most companies feel like they can better manage that in the workforce and population migration feel um, they, they can manage that risk, but what they can't manage is huge income tax. And here's the other thing. So if the assumption right now is your all of our federal taxes are going up. And so if you're gonna get a bigger federal tax bill, whether you're a company or a high net worth or mid net worth individual, how do you mitigate that? You move to a low income tax state. And so um, you go to Texas, you go to Florida, you go to Tennessee, um, you go to other Southeast states that are maybe only three or 4% income tax versus 14% in New York and New Jersey. And you can mitigate the increase in federal taxes, whether it's capital gains or the billionaire tax or what, whatever it's going to be. And so you're gonna pay it somewhere in property taxes is where it's made up when you have low or no income tax. So, but you can appeal it and, um, I'm really good at it. I haven't lost a case in 26 years. So I'm doing a lot of it for major retailers and uh, places like Colorado where it's very difficult. Um, and we're winning We're winning cases um, on the facts and on the law, particularly for retailers. So I think there's gonna be a lot of property tax appeal on office, hotel, retail. Um, I think it's gonna be harder on multifamily because you do have increasing rents. You do have declining cap rates and transaction activity to prove it. So um, buckle up, you're probably getting higher property taxes on multifamily and single family, um, and less so on office, hotel and retail, which are gonna be mass tax appeals the next, ten year, uh, next two years. Yeah, so if the interest rate uh, goes up, right? So will there be a concern about the cap rates also going up? There is. So if you think about it, one way you can build a cap rate up is your mortgage uh, equity, uh, mortgage dividend um, calculation, where you look at, you know, what percent is debt and your mortgage constant, and what percent is equity and your uh, equity um, yield. And, you know, one's, you know, 70, 30, and it goes to 60, 40, and one goes up a lot. You can see the resulting impact from a leverage standpoint, mortgage equity. That's, I always do that when I'm doing an evaluation to test myself on my cap rate selection, because ultimately we need to use capital to finance. And that capital is going to dictate kind of what my cap rate is going to ultimately be or the range. So I should be in the range of it. But you're right, as interest rates go up, uh, that's eating away at your cash flow, especially your after um, after NOI cash flow in in, in before debt service. So um, it does have a suppressing and dampening effect. Well, unless the uh, 
unless the uh, inflation you know increases the rent as well right then you yep. probably be in neutralizing effect i guess right so yeah get your get your uh, get your cash flows out and get your cash flow skills skilled up and do your sensitivity analysis between rent increases and and that's why i worry that when the interest rates are likely to really start moving later this year and next year is going to be when all these programs come out and your ability to increase rents is going to be hurt so it's it couldn't be a worse timing when your ability to raise rents is going to be the hardest at the end of this year and next year when all of these rent forbearance issues have to be dealt with, and that's likely when interest rates go up. Okay, is there a most important thing that new administration could do to prevent any massive economic crisis? Um, everything they're doing right now. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, secure the borders. You know, look at Texas, Arizona, whatnot. We have a hundred thousand a day when you tell the rest of the world you know whether you like trump or not but at least he secured the borders we brought the the crossings down i think the numbers i heard today was we're seeing a hundred thousand more either a day or a week that are coming across the border than we did a year ago because when the message was don't come here or we were working with our counterparts in Mexico, in Latin American and South American countries to do their enforcement to suppress that. We were pushing back, we were tapping it down. And now when you have a new administration that says, everybody come here, free healthcare, free education, you also get a vaccination, what do you think is gonna happen? And so you're talking 11, they don't even know if it's 11 million, it could be 20 million that come to the United States, they're gonna get benefits, they're gonna get medical, they're gonna get education, they're gonna get vaccinations. Good luck, California, Texas, and Arizona on paying for that. You guys are gonna are gonna pay a huge, huge price. And um, so that, and then look at the um, tax policy, look at energy, uh, increasing, anything you do to increase energy costs is a tax. And so there's ways to deal with energy. Instead of a stick, you can use a carrot. So what's been the carrot approach? Shift more, have incentives that shift you more to LNG gas instead of uh, other, you know, gasoline or oil burning. Uh, have a carrot that says, you know, for every five miles you increase your cafe standard on cars, you know, you get a, you get a benefit. Um, you know, encourage more of the credits on EV vehicles or whatnot. Um, there's a way to do more carrot than stick stuff, but we are headed towards putting us back five, 10 years on energy. Um, I'll tell you, I've already seen, I was buying gas for less than $2 a gallon um, before the holidays. I just filled up and it was $2.89 a gallon, almost a dollar more in three months. And I think we'll see national averages above three going to three fifty or four dollars a gallon within a year, and that's another tax that comes in. So I think in terms of what the current administration can do is I think it needs to go back and do some economic analysis. There's things we can do where we can balance the issues and concerns about climate change um, in our environment without destroying whole industries, without destroying um, you know the costs of important commodities and whatnot. And I think, you know, we should learn what is the lesson of Brexit in Europe. And the number one lesson is control your borders. And so uh, whether we like Trump or not, I think he did achieve successes on controlling the borders. And where we're going right now is a complete wide open border sanctuary cities. Um, look what's happening with police and law enforcement. I, I just think we go to these extremes. You know, from extreme right to extreme left, where most of us operate somewhere in the middle, and we have so lost the ability to operate in the middle that I, I worry a lot about the future of capitalism in America. I, I think we could be writing the epitaph 
on capitalism. This could be like the beginning of the fall of the Roman Empire. It doesn't happen tomorrow or over 12 months, but um, where we're headed, this is not good for, for capitalism in our economy. Got it. Uh, last question. Can cap rates become too low where it's not realistic predictor of value indicator? Has it ever occurred? It has, and it is right now in industrial. We're seeing uh, cap rates in the 3% in sub-markets right now. That just doesn't make sense. And it's it's all being justified on, I need a yield. I want to buy a triple net lease. I'm looking for yield. I don't care about the underlying value of the asset. I'm buying the lease. I'm buying the cash flow. And then what happens is we wake up three, five years later and find out that the trade is at six, seven, or 8% because debt costs have gone up so much. So yes, they can go too low. And that's why I say you really need to do that mortgage band of investment. Look at how the uh, the cost of debt changes and impacts that cap rate. So if it's so much lower and it doesn't make justified sense between your allocation of capital between debt and equity, that should be a warning sign. The other thing is many of these assets are being treated as all homogeneous. Every multifamily is just like all others. They're all worth a four or five cap rate. Every warehouse is just like every other warehouse, and it's a 3% cap rate. And we've learned lessons in retail and office before that's not the case. And you need to understand the fundamentals of a market and the fundamentals of that property. What's its age? Has it been renovated? Um, what's the tenant, the credit of that tenant? Um, all of those fundamentals. And so I think the market is throwing the fundamentals out. It's kind of like GameStop frenzy. Was it GameStop went back to 250 a share today? And it was 50 last week. Um, I think some of the same stuff is happening with commercial real estate. People decide they like it one day. They like the hunt for yield. They um, think, well, gosh, who cares about a six cap rate? I'll be willing to do five. That works in my margin with my debt right now. And tomorrow, the, the other guy says, well, four works for me. And then three works for me. And nobody's looking at the underlying fundamentals. So it happens about every 10 or 20 years. We're going there. <laughs> All right. I think that's it. So for those who ask for the recording, I mean, you will get the recording and uh, you will also get the slide, right, Casey, if you guys want. Absolutely. To. You can you can share those. Okay. Um, and you tell me when you want to stop recording and I'll do that. Yeah. I think that's it. Thank you very much. We can stop. Thank you, guys. Right hope, hope you all stay safe and healthy and hopefully we get together. I'm, I'm looking forward to maybe the CCIMs getting together in person in Pittsburgh later this year. And I know a lot of groups like NAI and others are getting there and stuff. And um, so stay healthy at the end here. Get your vaccination and uh, <laughs> and do your homework. The fundamentals, Absolutely. the fundamentals still matter. Absolutely. Thank you, Casey. Thank you. Have a good one. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audiobook. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free, along with other valuable resources, by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.